use that data to provide the optimal management, whether it's diet, whether it is coaching, whether it is changes in the medication. That is what they do with the data, assessing, analyzing, and providing intelligence on that to provide some type of intervention that could be provided to the users of the technology. So that is probably the common theme that you're gonna see as you look through the, well, my portfolio. Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borahovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and it would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous special episode, I spoke with Sean Cozen, founder of Fusion and a senior partner in an investment firm Braven where he focuses on advancing innovations at the intersection of biology, technology, and AI. Today, I speak with David Kim, Managing Director at Digitex Partners. In their own words, Digitex Partners is a venture firm focused on investing in and supporting early-stage startup companies in the digital health space. Launched in 2016 as a joint venture by Estellas Pharma and MPM Capital, Digitex Partners remains one of the few venture funds exclusively dedicated to the digital health space. In 2018, Astellas continued its endeavor in digital health by forming the RX Plus Digital Fund with Digitex Partners as its investment manager. But before we dive in, David and I were reminiscing and probably aging ourselves on how long we've known each other through this digital health scene. I first met David at one of the JP Morgan conferences through a dear friend, Dan Kogan. David struck me as a super thoughtful guy and a founder-friendly investor. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David. David, welcome to the DTX podcast. I know we met a few months ago again after so many years. We've been seeing each other, I think, in uh, JPMs, pre-pandemic, etc. So good to reconnect at DTX West. Great that you agreed to be on this podcast. And um, for all of our listeners would love for them to get to know you a little bit, your background, and then one small interesting fact, or a large fact for that matter. Good to talk to you again, Eugene. Uh, you know, we go a few years back, I guess, people who've been in the digital health world, kind of, we come back to see each other at various different places and various different times. So no, it's good to uh, you know, see you and, and talk to you again. One of the questions that was posed to me, it was actually, who am I? And actually, I had to kind of sit back and think about that. And I'm going, hmm, actually, who am I? And uh, what I would say is actually, I'm kind of a lucky guy to be in the position that I am. You know, one of the things that really drive me is uh, intellectual curiosity, intellectual stimulation. And the job I have actually allows me to do that on a daily basis, getting to you know talk to really smart people, entrepreneurs, really smart executives, other investors. And uh, it allows me to uh, satisfy the intellectual curiosity. And so I feel fairly lucky that I'm actually in the area of venture capital because it's a tough place to be from the standpoint of getting a job in this area. And uh, so I feel lucky and privileged that I'm where I am. And partly it's due to the background that I have. And just briefly, actually a physician by background did the whole thing of going to medical school, residency, getting boarded in internal medicine where the area that I practiced for several years before jumping into this world of finance. And uh, this was now way back. So I've been in the finance world going on 23 years. 
And my first job coming out of business school was actually more in the public side, doing equity research for a medical device team. And then on the sell side, and if you know anything about public equities, there's a sell side and the buy side, and I bounced from both sides, both on the sell side with equity research and on the buy side, being part of a mutual fund uh, hedge fund group. And I was doing that and was believing that that's the career that I was going to lead. But then again, luck would have it. I got a call basically out of the blue. And this was a partner uh, who focused on doing medical device investing at uh, NPM Capital. And he liked my background. He liked the fact that I had a clinical background, but also was at least knowledgeable about the medical device space. And so I got that call and that led to my career in venture capital that started back in uh, 2003, so 20 years now. Like they say, the rest is history, right? Right, rest is history. One interesting fact. Well, so people who actually get to know me a little better, that I actually have an interesting musical taste. I'm a very early fan of Prince. And a lot of people know Prince when he became popular through Purple Rain and The Sign of Times and those type of music. But actually, I'm a big fan of his really early music, and which is a little more rough R&B funk they call it Minneapolis music, Minneapolis sound. But that that's the music that I actually really enjoy. And people who know me will say, oh, yeah, he's a Prince guy. So hopefully the listeners right now are not hopping off of this podcast and searching <laughs> in the same podcast player for early Prince work. So stick with us, people. Stick with us, people. Well, you ventured into, pun intended, into the venture industry 20 odd years ago. You're now at Digitex, which is a fund. Tell us a little bit about the background. I know one of the pharma companies is also involved, again, to the extent that you can share from an LP perspective, all of that. Give us a little bit about Digitex. The genesis of uh, you know, Digitex Partners is back in 2016. And this is where we met before. It's like digital health really started to blossom about a decade ago. And uh, remember those days, actually, I was at a company called Lumiata with big data analytics with Ash Domley and Health 2.0. And that's the first time that we first met way back when with Dan Kogan. And that was the connection. So uh, it was pretty clear that in my mind that digital health was going to really blossom, that it was going to grow. And so I took that leap into the, I would say, the operational entrepreneurial side for a while. And then 2016, I got recruited back into an investing role because pharma, big pharma, they were very interested in digital health for various different reasons. Some of it is fear of the unknown. Some of it is fear of missing out. But one particular firm, Astellas, wanted to potentially integrate some of the digital health technologies and solutions to perhaps a new area of business. And for them, in order to get really smart and learn about that space, they decided that it was best way to do that is to actually invest in the space. So I actually got recruited to manage pool of capital that you know, their efforts were to actually you know, invest in the space and learn because what better way is there to learn about technologies, the competitive landscape, about new trends other than focus on the discipline of investing. So that's the original genesis. And then we started that um, initially as a small pool of capital. Then in 2018, we made that into a formal fund 
where Digitex Partners became entity to manage a dedicated fund. And Astellas, again, came in in a meaningful way and became the sole LP of that fund. And through this process, we made 16 new investments and some of the companies we will talk about a good number in the digital therapeutic space. And uh, happy to share you know, our investment thesis of how we decided on these companies. That was kind of the genesis. And now we're into our third fund. It's seven years into this journey and still going strong. So I would say that you know we're seeing the ups and downs of digital health, and we're seeing the ups and downs in other sectors of healthcare. But definitely, we've been there and experiencing the high-flying times of 2019, 2020, 21, and then starting to see the downturn, the mid-2022, and experiencing what we're going through right now is a lot of people kind of a little nervous about the overall environment. Yeah, you know, to a certain extent, whatever goes down, hopefully will come up as well. But the correction was needed. We'll dive much deeper into all of this. And actually, you comment earlier on the thesis, right? Because it's always challenging also for the entrepreneurs a bit when there is a sole LP and pharma, to your point, have been, let's call it broadly experimenting with digital health. You know, is it for drug discovery somewhere? Is it drug plus? Is it standalone? And I think the standalone use cases have been certainly even tougher for pharma to grasp. At least that's my take on it. I think the question that I would have for you is kind of the overarching thesis and how closely does it need to be with Estella's given they're an LP and some of those challenges, or you may not see them as challenges. Well, fortunately, it hasn't been a challenge because our focus has been, at least our interests have been aligned. And therefore, the fact that they participated in three rounds of investments in Digitex Partners. And it's partly because we are looking at broadly over the digital health space and digital health we define in many different ways, but it, it can be pretty broad and touch on a lot of different things. Everything from the intersection between pharma and technology all the way to, you know, soul like software driven healthcare services type. And it covers the gamut of that. They wanted to learn and experience all of those. So that was important focus. There are other pharmas. Their thesis is it has to be part of, of the existing franchise. It has to be in an area that we have a drug development that we're already commercializing in. That wasn't the case with Astellas, which worked well for us. So they wanted to actually, again, learn and explore and find those areas that are enhanced by the use of technology. And it could go everything from assessment, monitoring with sensors, all the way to actually finding the digital therapeutics that can help to manage patients in a certain area. So that alignment of interest really helped us. And uh, that's why we continue to work together. Listen, this is great to hear because especially on the entrepreneur side, that's always a big question mark. Now, I know you invested in some amazing companies. I've had the pleasure of having Anand from WellDoc, Jason from Mightier. To be honest, I haven't checked your recent and latest portfolio of anything specifically to the digital therapeutics, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what made you guys invest into these and specifically around your digital therapeutic thesis, at least, and how has it changed over time? It's not just digital therapeutics, but our view, digital health overall, and kind of our focus on how we invest is we try to invest in companies that do something meaningful with data. And from the standpoint more of the digital therapeutics is what kind of data set are you using 
to optimize the management of these patients. And typically, it's been the area of chronic disease. But there are a number of other use cases that there's certain data that allows you to provide the optimal case or optimal way to manage. And that's, again, whether it's an assessment, monitoring space, to all the way to delivery of the therapeutics or the type of therapeutics, we want to see how data is being used. And that's kind of the initial filter that we have when we start to evaluate companies. So automatically from that, you could see that we won't do the traditional medical device companies because they don't have a lot of quote-unquote intelligence around that. We don't do therapeutics, but we will look at companies that do something really interesting with data. So you mentioned WellDoc, a non-from WellDoc. What WellDoc does, you know, they've been a pioneer in the digital therapeutics space, but because they really tested out how you use data coming from various different either sensors or information of diabetes patients, type 2 diabetes originally, to use that data to provide the optimal management, whether it's diet, whether it is coaching, whether it is changes in the medication. That is what they do with the data, assessing, analyzing, and providing intelligence on that to provide some type of intervention that could be provided to the users of the technology. So that is probably the common theme that you're going to see as you look through my portfolio. And so the WellDoc is one, but we will push it to the extreme. There's another one that you may not know. It's a company called Neosensory. What Neosensory does is actually, it's a technology that came out of uh, David Eagleman's lab. And what they do is they take sound around individuals and convert it into patterns of tactile stimulation. Originally it was a vest, but they put it now around the wrist on a wearable device. So the obvious use cases are those people who can't hear at all. They actually feel the sound around them, whether their name is being called, door is being shut. So, you know, initial use cases in for safety for like warehouses, you know, where death workers may not just be hearing things that could be important for them. But they've also found use cases for management of tinnitus because peripheral stimulation plus tonal exercises actually improves the symptoms associated with tinnitus. And then where they are going is management of high frequency hearing loss because they can selectively detect those high frequencies and provide additional set of peripheral stimulation that the brain could use to say you are not hearing these high frequency sounds and so that optimizes the experience of hearing the sound around them but you can see the how again the data flow here and provide the therapeutics on the other end We're going to take a quick break and be right back with David Kim, Managing Director at Digitex Partners. Again, looking at not just your portfolio, but broadly the digital therapeutics industry, I'm curious on your thoughts about standalone DTX, the example we can use just maybe Mightier and the cousin Akili, or something like Drug Plus, where that digital therapeutic is surrounding a drug. A, what are your thoughts on each? And then the second part to the question, are you tracking any other modalities in this space? That's a really good question. So just touching on Mightier as a standalone, there are certain use cases where the standalone makes tremendous sense. And we're going to probably touch on this later. Ultimately, you wanted to make it available and easily available for the users. So Mightier, I think, has cracked that nut. But this is a common problem 
that many families face where their kids have difficulty managing their emotions, everyday life, and or it could be associated with attention deficits or other processes that are, you know, it's a complex problem. But emotion is one that impacts the family the most. And that's what Mighty is trying to tackle, is to provide a way to give these kids tools to manage their emotions overall, but delivered in a fun way through video games. So what My Dear does, it takes a biofeedback, in this case, heart rate, attached to the function of the video games so that it tracks how the kids are doing and then motivates them to practice all these techniques that they're learning, the deep breathing, the cross lines, and those type of tools that they can now transfer to just everyday life so that they do a much better job of managing. And these are the type of things that, you know, psychologists or behavioral psychologists in particular will try to teach the kids, but it is now enhanced by using tools like this. So that's the mightier. Now, the question about technologies with drugs or devices, this will be more of not just delivering a point solution, but how do you manage optimally those patient population? If you look at any clinical studies, no therapy has 100% success rate. I can't think of anything, whether it's devices, drugs, or digital therapeutics. However, if you want to manage a population of patients, why can't you use those different modalities to optimize the management of those patients? And one of the areas that I think that is really interesting area is an area of women's health, in particular menopause. Menopause, hot flashes, it's a big problem. It's a big problem, but it's not something that often people seek treatment going to their doctors. They first talk to their friends, coworkers, or other people in that age group and say how they're doing it. It could be everything from herbal medicine to non-invasive solutions, all the way to now there are various different drugs and devices that can actually help. And so one of the companies that you mentioned is a company called Ember. How they're doing it is they're basically causing uh, cooling sensations in the wrist that actually, if you want to be really clinical about it, retrograde stimulation to the part of the brain that actually modulates your sensation of being cool or warm. And then they're able to help modulate that. And it has uh, clinical validation from the standpoint of it decreases the severity and the duration of your hot flash symptoms. Is it for everybody? No. But there are many people, this works for them. And for them, it's a non-invasive, actually very fashionable, very stylish delivery of therapy. But there are certain people that this may not work. These are the same people who may benefit from drugs. And there are drugs that are being developed. Historically, it's been hormones, but now there are other drugs that are being developed and recently approved, actually. And I want to give Estellas a plug on that. Fisalonitin is a drug that is for that same indication, but it will be used in the same patient population. And if you were you know, someone who's helping to manage that patient, these are tools in your toolbox that you could use to help to provide that, the relief and the management of the symptoms. First of all, I love that example. And I'm just going crazy thinking as I'm sitting in a very warm climate, I'm like, I would like a shot of coolness. Obviously, in the past few months, the market got tougher. We've seen the bankruptcy of payer therapeutics and the assets. What have you guys picked up as lessons learned for your thesis going forward? Curious how you guys have been thinking about this. 
I don't want to say that we had a lot of knowledge other than some cautionary tales. As you know, long time ago, WellDoc, again, a pioneer in this space, they first came out with a prescription-related product in type 2 diabetes. It didn't work. It just was not a good distribution channel for that type of technology. And you could make an argument that they were way ahead of the game, and that's probably true. Perhaps you could make the same argument that that was the case with Pear, perhaps was ahead of its time. They have great clinical data. No one denies that. But the distribution and how it worked in the clinical workflow, the physicians to all the way to get to the patients, it was broken. And you saw the importance now of reimbursement, the alignment of physician interests and their time and workflow to how these type of technologies can be delivered to the people who actually need it. And I think that it's one of those things that it will be solved. In the process that are being, you know, we're seeing it now, it will get solved. But will it be solved in a timely fashion that will help the existing digital therapeutics? I guess, obviously, focusing on the prescription digital therapeutics. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel, and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, David. What is your thesis on the future of PDTs? I think it will be a matter of time when the distribution channel and the clinical workflow will adopt prescription digital therapeutics. We just don't know when that's going to be. And as you know, change in healthcare is slow. You know that the reimbursement process is arduous and it takes time. Understanding the difficulty of that, we at Digitex, we haven't really focused on those technologies that require as the main way of uh, commercial success. So going back to Mightier, they started as actually direct-to-consumer and where they got great adoptions. They have tens of thousands of families have already used it. But that type of experience and I would say validation allow them to start to sell it at a more enterprise level, to start to sell it to the payers, to Medicaid, to different large organizations that takes the benefit of actually having broad use already, and then start to NAS identifying populations that they're willing to pay for, independent if there's codes or not. Now, anytime you have a reimbursement code, it makes it much easier, no doubt about it. But it's not absolutely necessary for the now adoption at an enterprise level for that. Neosensory that I mentioned before, they're more of a direct-to-consumer because it is hard. It is hard to make sure that everything is aligned for the physicians or the care providers to actually champion and I would say support adoption of some of these technologies. And I have to say it, you gotta make it easy for them to do it and you gotta give them incentives to do it. And as you know, that drives adoption. And I'm going to jump in here as usual, and I think this is a little bit of the chicken and the egg what's happening in the marketplace now. To your point, David, you know, the adoption, the payment models, let's call it not just availability, but also recognition by physicians to prescribe this. This is a long game. And therefore, my question to you as both a physician in prior life and now as an investor, 
market itself had a correction broadly. We have all these macroeconomic impacts and interest rate impacts. Digital health had a huge correction. Digital therapeutics have had multitude of channels. Some succeed, some have been challenging. Now take things like prescription digital therapeutic. And I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're sitting there and thinking like, what's the future hold right here? So as an investor, just going to put you a little bit on the spot here, as a, let's call it broader digital therapeutic, what do you see that are the drivers for the new capital injections for the companies that are just getting started in this space? What are investors really looking for in this space now? It's almost a misnomer, but venture capitalists, they don't like risk. They don't like risk at all. I actually personally don't like risk, but it's our job to assess risk and an opportunity. And it goes all the way from technology risk to in healthcare, clinical validation risk or clinical risk, regulatory risk, and then we get to the commercialization risk. And where digital therapeutics is, is they pass the clinical validation. Most of them have clinical data that you say, hey, look at this, it's working. And many of them have passed the regulatory risk. FDA said, yeah, this is safe to be delivered with this indication or this label to this population where we have stalled. And unfortunately, Pear and Achille are perfect examples of this. And I'm picking on those because their information is public. I'm not saying anything that is unknown, right? It's just, it's been a struggle. And I think that commercialization risk is causing investors to pause, to understand, even if you go through the whole process of getting it to this point where historically, in other areas, especially like medical devices and definitely therapeutics, when you get to certain stage, you create huge value. Like biotech, you get a positive phase two, boom, you got valuation increase. Medical devices, it's been changing, but clearly if you get regulatory approval, there's a significant appreciation in value. Digital therapeutics in particular, but digital health overall. It's until you get clarity on how people are gonna pay for it, or often why, and show demonstration of support that they should be paying for it. It's hard for us to really assess that commercial risk because what we're finding is that the value of digital health companies comes at the point of that commercial success, that inflection point where you go and you start to see that hockey stick in revenues. And it's tough, it's tough. So not to say that people are not gonna dive into this, but it is a risk that we need to better assess and have an outcome that we think that is representative of the type of risk that we're gonna be taking. And uh, we're not there yet, but it's getting there. People are working on it. And so again, I think it's a matter of time before we're gonna see that inflection point, but no one wants to jump in first because sooner you jump in, you may be carrying the water for a longer period of time, which impacts your investment results, right? No, exactly. And to your point, there's many people still working on it. You know, I just had a few episodes ago, Megan Coder, right from the DTA. So they had the pretty good summit in DC, right on the Capitol Hill. So there's work ongoing. And again, these are safe and clinically validated therapies. They do work. So how do we get that into people's hands and reimbursed? You're a physician yourself, maybe in the prior life, but also you're a big believer in data technology. And so 
a little bit of the selfish question because I think, you know, as a broader digital health field, we sort of over-engineered on reliance on technology to solve all our challenges. So I'm going to put you on the spot on the question, the selfish question of where do you see the role of health coaches? This is non-clinical staff. I'm so curious on your thoughts. I know we had discussions back in San Mateo on this. So I, as a clinician, a decent understanding of what patient would benefit from I think they're a very valuable part of the overall care of both actually health, but also wellness. Because one of the things that we don't talk about is prevention, keeping people well before they have to deal with the need for health care. And I think coaches, and especially those who are not only educating, but providing more you know, ways to keep people healthy and giving them concrete ways to do it is super important. But as you know, there isn't a good payment system to reward that type of service. And I think that's where, as an investor, it's hard to, unless we have clarity on how your service is going to get value and someone recognizes it and is willing to pay for it, it's hard to bridge that gap. But I truly do believe that this is a valuable part of overall delivery of care. Yeah. And for that, we'll reference the Your Coach podcast, the thing about health coaching, where we do talk about everything that coming on reimbursements, you know, utilization, the science behind it, et cetera. So that's a small plug for us there. Let's get to that advice section. As somebody who is investing in entrepreneurs and driving kind of the future of the healthcare ecosystem, would love your thoughts on specifically early stage entrepreneurs. Every stage of it is tough, but that early stage of finding that you know market fit and even the product risks are even tougher, right? So would love your thoughts for those entrepreneurs that are getting on their journey. What I like about really early stage entrepreneurs is their passion, is their drive, that uh, twinkle in their eyes when they start talking about a project that they're working on. It's like, wow, that's hopefully some of that will rub off on me. But one of the things that, as you know, this is a long journey to take an idea and, you know, driven by that passion to actually get to a point that it is a commercially successful venture or commercially successful company. And often and early in the journey, you don't fully appreciate that. And so one of the things that I would advise is that to recognize that this is a long journey and that you have to have patience, but at the same time, constant sense of urgency, because things need to get done over that long period of time in order for you to achieve that vision that you have for that's initially a project in a company later. And one of the things that I often find is that um, these entrepreneurs come in with this passion, but they don't have a full appreciation of the problem itself. They may have been touched by a personal interaction, personal experience, or what is, for me, something that is really intriguing is they, in their workplace or in their domain of expertise, they found a problem that is just not getting fixed. Those type of things is where you want to start but you want to make sure that you get really smart about it. You get to understand not just that, but the whole ecosystem. And it's a recognition that you probably don't know everything that you think you know. And that is early on that you go and get the help to help you 
to find that things that you may not know because the worst thing that you, you want to do is come to an investor like me and I have to tell you the problems that you may be facing. You're supposed to teach me and not the other way around. So get to know that area and the problem as much as you can where you understand. And this may require you to talk to experienced executives in that area. It may be that you get uh, folks who are clinical experts, just kind of business advisors who's going to help you to think through to help you translate that passion into something that is actually more reality and do that early on and then continue to press forward. Because at the end of the day, you need a certain amount of luck to get to that point of success, but you may not get that luck until you put yourself in the position to get lucky. And so you just have to persist, practice patience, keep on working at it, and uh, you get the right people around you to you know, hopefully get to that point. And if you are lucky, sometimes you will get the right investors who share in your passion and help you with the finances to get you there as well. Words of wisdom. Love it. We started with you, David. Want to finish this episode with you. What gets you up in the morning? I think that it's going back to kind of describe what drives me or what I get out of uh, venture capital. One of the reasons that I left clinical medicine is because after a while, there wasn't as much intellectual stimulation. You just know how to do the things. 80% of what I was doing is I could literally do it in my sleep, probably still in bed. But there are things that you want to learn. And I think that the stuff that I do allows me to do that. The other thing is I would love to see some of the areas that I've actually made a bet on get to a point of success. I think there's so much satisfaction in knowing that you could actually help. You were part of the ingredients to get a company to a point of success. I'm about six, seven years into it, so I can't speak to a number of uh, examples yet. But last night I had dinner with one of the early portfolio company executives whose company got acquired and now is part of a bigger company. But I would love to see more of the technologies get acquired by those who want it and you know, perhaps IPO, but really see those things that we've been uh, investing in and to a successful outcome. That's exciting for me. Amazing. Thank you, David, for making the time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in once again. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.